<laughs> Nothing left. Terrible. There's just only things left. Just single gender up there. <laughs> Okay, how is um Invisible Man going? I love it. It's so good. Good. How far into it are you? I'm like 25% in. <laughs> oh, are you reading on a Kindle? Yeah, okay. 25%. I think that's like page 120. Okay, yeah, percents are the new pages. Okay. Um Good. I'm glad you love it. We're um, how are other people doing with it? I finished it. Oh, you finished it. That's pretty good. Okay. Good. What did you think next week? It was good. I thought it was good. It was kind of strange, and I feel like because it's 600 pages, I was like, oh, the editor could have cut some of this out. Oh man. Only because it's 600 pages. <laughs> but you finished it. Yeah. Now, it gets... Are you shaking your head, Lily? What? I think that maybe that's a big thing. Wait, say it again. Wait, guys, class has started. I'm oh, sorry. That's okay. Lily. Yeah. Um, an art that should have been practiced or not? Oh, isn't it's, art? No, no, no. Like, I think, I think that all the really long speeches, at first you're like, okay, I've got nothing to do. But then you, you really you invest yourself in listening to um, the Reverend's speech, for instance, and just hearing it, not only reading it, you, you see exactly why he included all of it. Uh-huh. The whole point is that it's propaganda. The whole point is that you're supposed to feel emotionally compromised. Like, your, your factors are supposed to feel emotionally compromised by the command of language. Yeah. Yeah, it's one way to think about it is to think that it's it's really not a novel to read once. It's not like okay, now I know the story. Oh, that's how it ended. Um, interesting, not what I was expecting. Or interesting, what I was expecting because at the very start he said that's what he would be doing. Um, but it's um, it's an amazing avalanche of um, intensification of. Um, Emotional, psychological, although one question we should ask is, is it a psychological novel or not? Um, and what would it mean to be a psychological novel? Um, but emotional, political, sociological, um, experiential intensification. And um, a whole lot of it by four reasons that have to do with um, what, how language is playing a role um, in a novel which is itself a work of art in the medium of language um, is one of the ways that the, that the novel is always, um, well, to continue with the avalanche metaphor, um, snowballing on itself, rolling back on itself. Um, part of, I want us to get back to Whitman and to finish um, because it, it actually is relevant, although not in the most obvious way, um, to Invisible Man, um, to finish um, Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking. Um, but a whole lot of Invisible Man is what Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking also is, which is, um, among other things, a depiction of artistic election. That is to say that um, one thing that um, writers often do and often do um, when they're writing most intensely because writing about the things that they care most about is they write about how it is that becoming a writer was what mattered to them beyond anything else or at least as much as anything else. Um, the ways that you can see this in Invisible Man are, first of all, all the amazing different voices that Ellison does, that Ellison captures, the long speeches and the way those speeches um, build upon themselves, all the rhetoric, all the um, backgrounds in old songs, in slave songs, 
um, in old performances, all the proverbs and the sayings and the evasions, um, but not only from um, an African-American background, not only from a slave background, but from all sorts of other backgrounds as well. Um, and the way all of these things come together. Um, there's also the moment if people, how many people, this, you can be totally honest about this, we're going to talk about um, Invisible Man both this week and Monday, and I know you're going to finish it all for the exam. Um, how many people are halfway through? Um, all right, so half of you are halfway through. How many people haven't started it? Well, that's good, too. Okay, so just keep reading. Um, plow through it. It's amazing. Um, the longest thing Ellison ever wrote is um, only published in fragments. It's something called Juneteenth. Does anyone know what Juneteenth is, what that refers to? Yeah. Um, I read the book. But you read it. Which yeah, version? It came out a long time ago. Was... There are two versions that have been published um, and yeah, lots of... Yeah. Um, so Juneteenth was basically excavated from what from the fiction that Ellison was writing after Invisible Man. He kept writing fiction and he was working on this um, amazingly long thing, some of which got burnt up in a fire and which he had to rewrite or um, write differently, but writing this amazingly long thing um, that was unfinished at his death. Um, and parts of it have been excavated as standalones. It's not clear whether it's fair to do that to them or not, but it's certainly better than nothing um, to have them. Um, they may look a little bit more, more coherent than they are because it's not clear how they would have fit into the um, general architectonic of what he was planning. Um, but it's something that he worked on for years and years and years. Um, but part of... Um, the, this novel does work um, as a complete and coherent whole. He has um, a start and an ending. And um, what happens about halfway through is that the um, main character, lots of people, if you read about Invisible Man, um, people tend to call the main character invisible, just for short, um, because we don't know his name. Um, not only don't we know his name, but he doesn't know his name halfway through. Um, halfway through, he goes through um, the equivalent of electroshock treatment. Um, do people know what that is, electroconvulsive therapy? What is it, Maxie? It's basically they hook you up to this kind of like machine where you're like they put little things on you, then they zap you. And they zap you. Um, and this used to be um, a really, really, really overused treatment um, for depression, um, for suicidal tendencies, for bipolarism, for, for schizophrenia even. Um, I think from the 40s, really through the 70s. Um, and the reason people tended to use it was that um, the first thing that it did was caused amnesia. Um, you would get zapped, and the idea was, the theory behind it was, that everything that was bothering you would just be wiped away from your memory. Eventually, you would recover your memories, but you would have a chance um, to be freed of them for a while. That was one theory. Um, for how it worked. It was um, really useful for making very, very unhappy people docile. Um, if you've seen uh, the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, it's um, when electroconvulsive therapy doesn't work, then lobotomy it is, is the next step. That is almost never done anymore, thank goodness. Um, electroconvulsive therapy is also very, very rarely done. But it used to be a thing when doctors knew best about everything or thought they did and thought they should be running the world. Um, so that happens to the main character of Invisible Man, or some version of that happens in the paint factory. Um, anyone remember the name of the paint factory? What is it? No, the paint is called Optic White. So the name of the paint that he's mixing is Optic White, but the name of the factory is Liberty Paints. So those are all loaded words. This book is full of loaded words. Um, I asked you to notice the colors, and I hope um, that in the reading that you did since, since Monday, you did notice the color, um, 
all uses of color, or almost all uses of color, and they're pretty remarkable. Um, and um, the idea of a paint called optic white, and that um, what is optic white used for? Where does he know it from? Where does the main character know it from, even before he gets to Liberty Paints? Do you remember? He's seen it before. There's a reason. Okay, so here's a little plot thing. There's a reason that Dr. Bledsoe knows Mr. Emerson and that Mr. Emerson's son knows about Liberty Paints. Um, so there's a connection between that you can link up between Dr. Bledsoe, um, the Emersons, and then Liberty Paints. Um, and if you um, close the circuit, if, um, that's clear also. Optic white is the paint that's used all over um, the college that the main character goes to. Um, he loves remembering how they would do the painting every summer how the, um, or every spring. Um, the, the whiteness of optic white all over at least the buildings of the school that the trustees would go to, that the donors would go to. So interpret a little parable there. Why is the school being painted white? <laughs> is this hard? I think this is easy, yes. Like metaphorically wise? Yes. Painted white? Yes. Because it was, wasn't it just created by white people and it's all controlled by white people? Well, it's certainly not controlled by white people. It's controlled by Dr. Bledsoe. Um, but it's um, funded by white people. And it is therefore, um, he makes sure to cater to their prejudices. Um, not their prejudices as in um, violent, clear, obvious um, racism, but a much more subtle kind of racism um, that he puts to use himself. And the subtle kind of racism that he puts to use um, is the racism, well, what is racist about the school? What is it that um, the white trustees are, how are they um, figures of racism? Yeah, Lily. They're trying to whitewash the black kids. Whitewashing not turning them into white people, but people who cater to the needs of white people who find it to be, like, they, they aspire to serve white people to get as close to whiteness as they can. Mm -hmm. Hold them to thinking that they can somehow achieve prestige with the color of their skin. Yeah. Okay, so that part of it is that um, what success would look like um, you can feel very strongly what success would look like for the white trustees of um, the school is something like black people who admire white civilization, who have um, internalized and learned um, to admire the great works of white civilization, um, and who acknowledge those great works as white that is not as white and impossible for us to have done, but as white and um, something that we can aspire to belong to. Um, so the idea would be something like that school tells its trustees. It's not, in fact, quite what Dr. Bledsoe is doing, um, Dr. Bledsoe being one of the villains in the book, obviously. But what the book is telling its trustees is you can feel good about funding education for black people at this school, which, as I say, is based on Tuskegee. Um, you can feel good about funding education for black people at this school because what you are funding is an education by which they will um, admire the generosity that causes you to fund it, a generosity that is itself the flower of the best parts of white civilization. Um, you know, there's a, there's a great line that Gandhi had when he was once asked skeptically by a British reporter, um, surely, um, um, you know, you're, you're, you're um, looking for Indian independence and you're um, struggling against the British Empire, but come on, what do you think of Western civilization? And Gandhi's response, anyone know? It would be a good idea, was his response. 
Um, so what he thought about Western civilization was it wasn't. Um, but what Bledsoe is doing is flattering the trustees and thereby getting money out of them and getting support out of them and getting power out of them into thinking that they themselves are representatives and noble representatives of the nobility of their own background. So painting the college white, especially painting the parts of the college that the trustees are living in with optic white, um, that's a parable for that. That's something, that's, that's something to interpret. Um, as being precisely about that. What's, what do we know about how optic white is made? What's the job that the main character, yeah, Lily? Yeah, it has to be doped very, very carefully with exactly 10 drops of this black dope or this black substance, which at first looks like it's making the white not look white anymore, but when you mix it up, the white looks even whiter. So that there again, what's that a parable of? <clears throat> if it were a fable, yeah, interpret it, Angela. It's like the Yeah, and it's also making white culture, again, appear all the more noble. That is, yes, we take in a very, very, very careful number of black drops of the dope, of black paint, presumably, just, the, just a really, really careful um, and, and um, restricted number of those black drops, and then we can stir the paint and the whiteness becomes optically all the more beautiful, all the more white. Um, so the parable, that parable cuts a little bit both ways. Um, one is that in fact white civilization would not be whatever is impressive about it, would be less impressive without the contribution of the blacks that it exploits, of the black people that it exploits, of elements of black civilization that it exploits, but it's a highly restricted contribution. It's a contribution that's used just to make white civilization all the whiter, to make white nobility all the more white nobility, um, and all the more self-satisfied, um, all the more pleased with itself. And Dr. Bledsoe is really, really good at manipulating this, but that's what the main character um, is essentially living through, on some level understanding and on some level not, but living through, and certainly what Ellison um, is writing about by having him have that long um, experience within um, Liberty Paints. One of the great things about the novel is just the extent to which it feels episodic. That is, if you think about his no good, bad, awful days, there are several no good, bad, awful days where lots of things happen on the same day. Um, and, but they nevertheless are hooking up to stuff that happens later. So that at Liberty Paints, that's where he first comes into contact with union members and with the Brotherhood. Um, the Brotherhood, do people know, well, if you haven't gotten more than halfway through, you probably won't know much about the Brotherhood, but those who finish it, Maxie or anyone else, uh, what is the Brotherhood in the real world? What's it referring to? Do we know? Yeah. Hannah. No, it's this is pre-Black Panthers. Um, plus, the Brotherhood is mainly white. <laughs> In fact, it's almost entirely white. Um, is it the? Oh, I could be really wrong about this. But is it the Communist mm -hmm. Party? Or? Yeah, it's a Communist Party. So it's um, the Communist Party, which is now. Um, working hard and agitating and um, using the main character just as much as every other institution that he finds himself in contact with uses him. Um, but there you have, he comes into the union meeting um, and people respond to him partly on the basis of his color. 
um, but mainly on the basis of what they assume his politics are. They assume he's a think, which is a really bad word at the time. Um, and that's already been prepared for because he's been called a scab. Um, that is, um, that when he first goes down to mix the paint, the idea is, um, and when he's first hired, the idea is that the workers are unionizing, and that unionization um, means that they're demanding higher wages, and the way the company is responding is by hiring black people who really, really need jobs and who will work, as, as the main character really, really does, and who will work for lower wages and who are therefore scabs. Um, but um, the um, guy who brings him around and explains this to him also says, it's not your fault, um, which is an important thing to um, keep in mind. Um, that it's not the narrator's fault, it's not um, the fault of the people who are hired because those are the only jobs they can get because they're black. Um, it's the fault of those who want to break the union, that is, the owners. Um, but still, what happens is there's a strong um, division between the owners and, um, I'm sorry, there's a strong division between two types of um, oppressed groups. This is something that seems to be playing out right now in our politics, and it's perennial in American politics. Um, a strong division between those who are oppressed um, because of the perennial racism in American culture and those who are victims of economic oppression. So there is, in current politics, there are appeals to um, poor whites who are, um, and poor white men who, in particular, Trump is very good at appealing to, men who used to have good union jobs before um, the unions were um, decimated and destroyed. And they are set against, they are, they are placed against people who are experiencing um, the oppression of racism, who continue to experience the endless oppression of racism. This is also what's happening um, in the debates, not quite so much, although there, in the emphases that Clinton is putting on in her campaign and that Sanders is putting in on in his campaign. campaign. Um, but it's certainly something that you find in their supporters, and it's certainly something that you find in the demographies of people who in the Democratic campaign um, are voting for Clinton and those who are voting for Sanders. Um, Sanders' basic view is that if you, um, to simplify it too much, but that if you take care of economic injustice, that will automatically take care of a whole lot of racial injustice, um, because economic injustice is um, massively worse for non-white people than for white people. So addressing economic injustice will address um, racial injustice, and so that's what you should do, um, whereas Clinton is much more taking the, takes the view um, that Racial injustice is something that has to be addressed um, as a primary injustice and not simply as something that will be, um, that will come along with addressing economic injustice. Um, yeah. Can I just ask as far as like, we're talking about like current events and politics and stuff, how historically accurate is this book? Well, it's historically recognizable. Okay. So what do you mean by historically accurate? Just like, oh, it's such a naive white thing to say, but like... No, it's okay. But just like, it seems really horrible, like how horrible, like, each, like the first scene even. Like, is that something that would have happened? Um, by the first scene, you mean the Battle Royal? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, but again, not that... Um, it's an intensification and a, a, um, um, a distillation of general attitudes. Um, so, the, so you know, it's, you could say it's something that still happens. What do you think is happening in the NFL, where um, the richest um, sport in America, one of the largest industries in America, takes the form 
of um, white people, you know, especially the the um, owners and the um, commissioner of the NFL, making insane amounts of money. Um, looking at people who are disproportionately black, fighting each other and destroying their brains, um, and lying about the fact that that's what they're doing, keeping um, the, the studies that would show that subconcussive trauma in the NFL is horrible for people, um, and keeping those studies from being public, trying using the same lobbyists as um, there's an article about this in the Times a couple of weeks ago that they use the same lobbyists um, that the tobacco companies use because those were people who knew really well how to defend the indefensible in the public sphere. Um, so, you know, whatever you think about football, there's no question in my mind that the, um, there are lots of people in the NFL who are um, trying to keep the dangers of football um, from being made public or from being made more public or from being made more obvious. And there again, what you have is entertainment, which is not explicitly racist, but which is nevertheless disproportionately um, the, the pain and the suffering falls upon black people. Um, to entertain a large American audience where most of the profits go to white people. Um, so is that the same thing as Battle Royal? Um, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. But the way it's yes is you could say it's the NCAA. That is that what's happening here is that the, the exchange is education. We will give you an education um, if you um, undergo this um, athletic tournament, which gets us all really, really excited in a sadistic way. So um, is that a fair thing to say about American sports? Mm, probably not quite. But is there some aspect to it for some people? Well, certainly there is. Um, certainly the violence of some sports is um, what makes them so popular. And that violence is something that people suffer from. And um, what they get in exchange for that violence, at least on college level sports, is they get scholarships. And that's exactly what happens to the narrator. You know, there's something amazing. The idea that you would um, have a gigantic fight in a ballroom and then give a speech, that probably doesn't happen very often. Um, but the idea that there is something like this going on, that the idea of the scholar-athlete is not an ideal, but a kind of demand and a kind of bribery, yeah. You know, if you want a more realistic version of it, watch Friday Night Lights, for example. If you guys have ever seen that um, TV series, you've seen it. Um, it's great. And um, it's partially about that. Um, boxing much more than football, um, but the same sort of thing. Um, since boxing is no longer a major sport in America, although it was, um, the same sort of thing in boxing. Um, so is that, is that realistic? No, but is it easily understood to refer to real things? Yes. Um, and um, is it fair to what's really happening and to what was really happening then? Totally, absolutely, more than fair. Um, part of what Ellison does in the way he writes this book is to um, underplay a whole lot of stuff so that when he actually starts describing things much more accurately, um, they come as shocks. Um, the narrator of Invisible Man comes to New York, and one of the things a northerner of any race might feel is, look how much better the north is. Um, he doesn't have to sit in the back of the bus. Um, when he's pushed against people in the subway, they're not shocked. Um, there are black policemen there. Um, and all of that is um, a relief after the racism of the South in Invisible Man, except it turns out, no, it's actually racist, just as racist in the North, but in subtler ways. And when you discover that, um, then your own satisfaction at being a Northerner, if you, which you guys at least are now because you're living in Waltham, your own satisfaction at being a Northerner um, takes a hit and should take a hit. Lily. I'd like to comment specifically on one really underplayed part, which is 
is um, when a doctor who's looking at him in electroshock therapy, he or she, I forget what gender. The doctors are male and the um, nurses are female. Okay. Um, one uh, suggests to maybe just like sterilize him while we're here. Why don't we just try to prevent his ability to have babies? Um, and it just, it's like a one liner. I like that you said sterilize. It's emasculate. Okay. Which it which would sterilize him. Oh, what, what, what exactly is the biological difference? Well, you can you can a vasectomy sterilizes okay. as well. Um, what, which what, I don't know what biologically that is, but someone just casually is like, well, we're at it. Why don't we? And that's actually historically accurate. That um, I, I know more about. Yeah, sterilization is. Like, they brought him into to get like a checkup or something, just like cut off their ability to create. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, no, that, absolutely. And it's shocking. And it's what, what is happening with him at that point um, is that <coughs> he's being made the subject of a biological experiment. Um, the electroshock, they don't emasculate him, but the electroshock therapy is partly, they have a little bit of an argument, well, what if he went to Harvard and he were white? Would we be doing this? And the answer to that is, it's actually kind of okay because he is a more basic or primitive or earlier form of human being, so it's not quite the same thing as if he'd gone to Harvard. Um, so, Zara? Uh, when they say emasculate, are they referring to castration? Yes. So um, emasculate literally means um, um, end the masculinity of. Take away the thing that makes you masculine um, if your gender is, or if your sex is masculine. Um, yeah, so they're referring to castration, which oh, is. Okay. I, I thought Well, they don't, they won't do a lobotomy, so, that, so they don't invade the brain, but they make a joke about invading the body. Um, and about, about um, um, mutilating the body, and mutilating the body in a way precisely that sterilizes. Um, so these things that happen to it, well, here, so here's another question. I do want us <laughs> to get back to Whitman. Um, but um, why is it, so, the, so his first no good, bad, awful day, is the day that he, as a junior in college at the age of 19, um, and just to give you a, just a little bit of background about Tuskegee. So Tuskegee, as I mentioned on Monday, was founded by Booker T. Washington. Um, Washington died in 1915. And one of the things that happened afterwards, which was a good thing, and this, um, I hope you guys read the Du Bois, um, is that it went from Washington's vision of being a trade school, that is a school where black people could learn um, skilled labor, a vocational school. It started um, becoming, in the 20s, it, turned, it was turned into a liberal arts school. Um, and that's one of the things that Du Bois is pushing for. Um, the idea that you don't start the debate that in that 1903 chapter of his book, The Souls of Black Folk, um, what he is arguing for is not starting out by learning trades and then slowly building up to more and more um, liberal arts and purely intellectual and philosophical and aesthetic um, relations to the world. But as he points out, Harvard and Yale were founded before trade schools were founded in the United States. And the same should be true for black institutions as well. Um, so part of the debate, again, between, um, and these debates are, are very, very complicated. And, uh, very, and there are many, many, many different issues. So this is the most um, basic um, simplification of a debate between um, Washington and Du Bois is that Washington was imagining that black people could um, make themselves into um, a, an economic um, part of society um, by having skilled labor, by um, living in ways that were not going to make whites anxious and fearful 
um, about um, uh, being displaced or being in competition with black people for the things that whites valued, um, and that eventually um, white culture would hopefully um, welcome black culture and black people into a larger American culture. Um, whereas Du Bois was much more strongly interested in pushing hard from the start for the um, equality on all levels of black people and black culture um, with white people and white culture. Um, and Du Bois, um, in, in pushing for that, um, there actually was, Du Bois, do people know about him? He was um, the first black PhD from Harvard. Um, his PhD, he was born in 1868. His PhD was in sociology, and he was a sociologist and um, an extraordinarily good economic historian. Um, his, the souls of black of uh, black people or the souls of black folk is um, his most famous book. He has another really amazing mm -hmm. book called Black Reconstruction um, and a book really, really worth reading, which is the history of Reconstruction um, as from the perspective of, um, of black experience. And um, what was happening, he wrote it as a um, counter to a theory of Reconstruction that, um, that was going around in the 1930s and 1940s, which is that Reconstruction was a failure because it gave blacks too much power and they weren't able and they were not naturally fitted for the use of that power. And it was a kind of white man's burden theory that Reconstruction was a failure um, because blacks were going to Congress and, and whites were not permitted to run the society they should have been running. Um, du Bois gives a really, really powerful and historically extremely well-informed account of the failures of Reconstruction as failures um, that were done through the manipulation of white interests um, in which what should have been, and this is why these things are perennial, what should have been common cause made between poor whites and freed black people for to demand their economic rights, that the ex-slave owners and the rich whites in the South managed to turn this into an argument between poor whites and freed blacks, managed to make poor whites see freed black people as the competition for jobs, and managed, therefore, to take what should have been um, a natural and obvious economic um, difference in interests between the poor and the rich was instead split down the middle as a, um, an opposition of interest between blacks and whites. And so that poor whites were told, and you can see this in immigrant politics today, um, as well as in um, racial politics, um, poor whites were told that what was keeping them poor was that blacks wanted their jobs and that um, blacks would be hired. You can see this in Invisible Man also. That's what's happening in uh, Liberty Paints. Um, so Du Bois is very, very clear about this, um, that this is, um, that this was the response by the white moneyed interests in the South during Reconstruction, the response to um, the idea that there would now be this large population of people who were hard workers, both white and black, who never had anything, but who now um, wanted to work for themselves and wanted to rise, let's say, as a middle class, um, that the response of the rich was to set whites against blacks, to tell poor whites that the, their real enemies were freed blacks, and that they were very successful at it, as we know through the foundation of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, which was um, attracted many, many, many poor whites um, to it. Um, so 
that the 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 failure of reconstruction is something that Du Bois sees as through the manipulation of what should be class interests instead into racial animosity. Um, and as I say, it's something that we still live with, and it's something that Ellison is describing as well. Um, what Du Bois wants is to um, prevent precisely that distinction. And for him, the way to do it, or one way to do it, um, one very strong way to do it, is education. Um, and um, that for him, really, rightly, in my opinion, that really matters. Okay, go back now, though. So what, uh, the, just, just the, the historical background is, so Washington died in, in 1915, after which Tuskegee did, start, did turn itself into um, a liberal arts institution. And one of the things that it did, um, which wasn't true, this is something Du Bois talks about in The Education of Black Men, um, and talks about full of praise, um, is that Tuskegee was one of the first institutions to try to um, have a black faculty as well as a black student body. Um, so the other, the black um, colleges and universities that Du Bois is talking about um, largely had white faculty, um, white faculty who had the training um, and who had the commitment to, um, to want to participate in um, providing as much educational opportunity as possible. People, as Du Bois says, mainly from New England, um, who wanted to engage in the great project of building educational opportunities and institutions for um, black people, for um, the people who had, born, who had been born in slavery. Um, du Bois was born right just after the end of slavery in 1868, um, and for the children of people born in slavery, um, and wanted that education to be serious, wanted that education to be as um, aspirational as, the, as any white education had ever been. Um, and what starts happening by the time that Ellison is going to college is that um, there are black faculty who are doing the same thing. Now we have schools with black faculty, which we didn't, which they didn't, which the US did not, which the South did not, um, with very, very rare exceptions, individual exceptions, um, did not have in the, at the end of the 19th century. But now it's something that's starting to happen in the 20th century. Um, and that feels, rightly, I think, like an advance. Um, so now, at the beginning of Invisible Man, one, the first bad, no good, awful day that um, the narrator has as a junior is the day that he's driving Mr. Norton around. Um, and Mr. Norton is fascinated, as I hope you were, by Jim Trueblood's story. Um, why? Why is it that the narrator can't get him away? Why is it that, that Mr. Norton is so unwilling to leave, despite the narrator's constant attempts to get him away, his constant hints that they should leave? Why is, why is Mr. Norton so unwilling to leave? Why does he want to hear this story to the bitter end? Yeah, Lily. Because Trueblood is an amazing, amazing storyteller. I think that, that actually, um, the Invisible Man is actually a great storyteller. Um, and so he draws up the, um, the cliffhanger of why did you do this horrible crime? What, what's the mystery behind the crime that you committed? Um, mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, so one thing is he really is an amazing storyteller, and I hope um, that you guys were, like, unable to put it down. Like, how could this happen? You know, here is a person who is essentially introduced to you as um, having done pretty much the worst thing a person in a novel can do, 
Um, murders, you know, people murder in novels all the time, but it's not the worst thing you can do in a novel. It's the worst thing you can do in real life, um, but not the worst thing you can do in a novel. Um, there's something about incest which has, um, because it's more, it's so much more unusual. Um, something about incestuous rape, which is so much more unusual in fiction. Um, it's so much more unusual in fiction because it's so icky. Um, and it's partly, it feels so icky in any fictional work because it's so unusual. Yeah. Yeah, I think that as to why Norton stays for so long and is so interested is because True Blood's introduced as this horrible criminal man because we just know him through his crime. And then he manages to humanize himself and decriminalize himself through telling the story. And it just sounds so much amazingly less heinous mm -hmm. than it first did when we're hearing it through his, like, mouth. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I don't know, I guess that would be, especially as this, like, white trustee, I'm sure that's shocking and unheard of and fascinating mm -hmm. for, to talk to this horrible criminal and have them not seem like a horrible criminal. Okay. So, but why does he collapse after he hears the story? Why is it so much, why is it so much too much for him that they, that the next thing they have to do is go um, to get liquor um, in order to try and prevent him, um, as it seems to the narrator, from dying. Um, what has affected him so much about the story? In other words, if the story is just that horrible, then why aren't we all collapsing as we read it and desperately needing a drink? Yeah, Lily. Okay. Mm -hmm. that he, he thinks he's supporting and that's why it's his fate. And then he sees someone who could have been his fate who he just doesn't recognize and so it just undermines his identity and his perception of blackness. Okay, how could he have been his fate? What do you mean by that, to say the true oh, blood? it's arbitrary where you end up and nothing, at a basic level, nothing makes uh, the invisible man better than true blood. It's just the economic situation. To me, it's arbitrary. Maybe it's yeah. Both, so it's a racial lottery, as it were. That is, there's um, the great um, um, legal or, or um, political theorist John Rawls, um, who in his wonderful, wonderful book, A Theory of Justice, um, has a concept of what he calls a lottery of talents. That is, that um, if you are a strong libertarian, which some, which some of you may be, um, part of the answer of being a strong libertarian, or part of the um, argument for being a strong libertarian is something like um, people who, you know, Steve Jobs should get credit for the fact that he um, had these amazing talents that other people didn't, um, and people should be rewarded for who they are and for the talents that they have. Um, and redistribution and ruinous taxation and so on, so the argument goes, is unfair because you're treating everyone as though they are equally talented and equally um, deserving of um, the wealth that society produces, whereas some are makers and some are takers. And um, what Rawls says is um, the fact that you're talented is luck. <coughs> What you are as a person, and I think this is, you should think of this in Invisible Man, what you are as a person is a mortal being. What you are as a person is someone who lives, suffers, and dies. Um, your experience of that is an experience of being alive, being thrown, to go back to that idea that we were looking at in Paradise Lost. Um, and in the intimations owed. Now, the fact that you can do certain things, um, that, you, that you have certain talents, that's a fact that you become aware of. But it's not so much a fact about you as a fact about what you possess. If you possess a talent, if you can run fast, if you possess a talent, that you are a very good calculator, that you can do math really well, that you have insight into how um, 
to do information technology, um, that you are a really good engineer, that you are um, really good at anything. That is, those are possessions. The word talent originally meant a piece of money, as some of you know. Um, the parable of the talents, for example, which is a parable that Jesus tells. You're given talents, or you possess talents, but you, you possess them in the same way that you might possess whatever it is that you inherit from um, your family or whatever you win in a lottery or whatever stock that you um, invested in on a whim and it came true. Those are all possessions. But even your own talents are possessions. Your looks are possessions. They aren't you. They're what other people think of you as, but they're not you. What you are is the being that experiences the world including your own outer self. Not your inner self, but your outer self. And so what Rawls says is there's a lottery of talents, and some people are born lucky because they have, more, they have a lot of talents. And some people are born unlucky because they don't have those talents. But that's not to their internal credit. You don't get to think, I'm really important and more important than other people in an absolute sense because I'm smart. Being smart, you were lucky if you're smart, but that's just luck. That came through a lottery of talents. What you are as a person is a pure person, and you may possess certain things, and those possessions are unevenly distributed, but they don't give you more moral claim on the world just because you possess them. And race is one of the things that comes by lottery, I think is what you're saying. So that Mr. Norton, had he been born poor and black, um, realizes when he's seeing Jim Trueblood um, what that might mean, which had never occurred to him before. Is that, what, is that a decent paraphrase? Um, I, I mean, it's another way to look at it, um, like the, the, the parallel between Norton and True Blood, but I was talking specifically about the parallel between True Blood and uh, The Invisible Man. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, but again, it comes with one was born into a family with a better advantage than the other, and that's what's happened. It's not that they're unequal at a human level, they're unequal at an economic level. Yeah. Level. Okay, um, you have to think a lot about the Invisible Man's grandfather, though. Um, however, here's the thing. Just, you know I never end with, um, aha, you didn't think of this, but aha, you didn't think of this. The really important thing, the reason that Norton is so obsessed is because he's obsessed with his own daughter. And what he's seen, remember, he's got the picture of his daughter, his daughter who has died in Berlin, and who's the great loss of his life and all he talks about. What True Blood has shown him is his own repression of his relation to his daughter. True blood is, in fact, the truth, hence the word true, the truth of what Norton wants from his daughter, but idealizes. Norton is sexually in love with his dead daughter, but he can't admit that to himself. But true blood makes us see it and makes him understand it. And he's shocked by this, and he's jealous. And that's a really important thing to say, to see, is that true blood is Norton, but without the dishonesty. And it's not that true blood is totally honest. He's not. But he's Norton without the dishonesty, including dishonesty to himself. Okay, tomorrow we're having sections. Finished um, the novel for sure by Monday.